Eden Lepaki is the New York Times best-selling author of the apocalyptic novel, California. Her fiction and nonfiction have been published in various outlets, including Esquire, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and McSweeney's. She's also co-host of a podcast called Mom Rage. Please give a very warm welcome to Eden and to our panelists. Um, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to Zocalo and the Getty Center. Um, I'm going to quickly introduce these illustrious panelists. They're the real deal. Uh, Right here is Raina McIntyre. She's an epidemiologist and global biosecurity bio scholar at the University of New South Wales. She has pioneered research in the prediction, control, and prevention of pandemics and bioterrorism. She has also published on how scientific research intended to benefit humanity may ultimately harm humanity. Next to her is Liam Young. He is a speculative architect and futurist at SciArc. His work examines the invisible connections and systems that make the modern world work. He is also the co-founder of the think tank Tomorrow's Thoughts Today, which explores the local and global implications of new technologies. And at the end here, we have Jonathan Wong. He, he goes by John, just FYI. He is a defense policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. A former U.S. Marine, his work focuses on how new technologies and intelligence strategies are shaping the way militaries fight. Thank you guys for being here. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. I thought the first place we might start is to talk about technology because at least among my peers and people I talk to, that seems to be what tends to scare people and also at the same time is what is empowering people. Um, Jonathan, John. John, thank you. John, Johnny, John. Um, you told us that your perspective on this topic might be, and I quote here from an email, best summed up as a perspective on how large organizations like governments and corporations deal with change. Um, for instance, you recently wrote um, about the Pentagon's move to hire a chief innovation officer, um, and your concerns, you had concerns about how a huge bureaucracy might not be nimble enough to face technological changes and make fast decisions as needed. So I guess I'm curious how your specialized knowledge informs your view on how governments can work or don't work yeah. in kind of tumultuous times. Yeah, and I would say that you know, having been once a member of the world's largest bureaucracy, about two million, uh, two million people, and now someone that studies it, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I, at first when I wrote that that article about how the Pentagon was trying to capture up the innovation that Silicon Valley, for instance, is uh, uh, is well known for, and trying to figure out how they can do it for themselves, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty, I was pretty skeptical about it. But now about a year and a half later, um, I'm actually quite, uh, quite impressed with the way that this large, largest uh, of bureaucracies has been able to take that, what I thought was once a fad, and really uh, bring, it, you know, bring it around and, and take it to heart. And I, a couple things kind of stand out to me. So, you know, for the U.S. military, and this is, you know, just the way that they, they do things, when they buy a weapon, for instance, they often try to think about all the ways they want to use it 
and then figure out the best thing that, you know, that design the best thing that can do that, and then, uh, and then deploy it from there. And that usually takes a long time. And that's where you get a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the criticisms of, of how it works and how, you know, how expensive it is to, to us, the taxpayer, and so on and so forth. You know, what I've been finding is that they've been really flipping that entire playbook on its head. You know, the, the, you know, the kind of Byzantine process by which they do that, they're now seeing that innovation is coming from the outside and they need to adapt to it, that, they, that the new things, new research, new developments are coming from outside the Pentagon and they're really, I think, doing a really good job capturing it. If you had asked me about a year ago whether I felt that a bureaucracy as large as the Pentagon was able to be nimble and make decisions quickly, I would have, I would have scoffed. Uh, but I think now uh, I'm a little bit less skeptical. Uh, I'll put it that way. Right. Do you think, you know, we, you see that businesses, you know, empl like employees and shareholders at places like Amazon are really pushing for the company to make, to act on things like yeah. climate change. Do you think that's having, you think that that's having an effect on how the government is deciding to work? Oh, a absolutely. And, you know, when I, I was thinking about this for, you know, for a little bit of my time, I was, you know, as a management consultant, as, as many young people my age seem to do at one point or another. Um, and I was really curious about how corporations really make their decisions. And I found that for the government, and I think they, this is the key difference here, the government makes, or governments, make decisions by analyzing something, really trying to figure out exactly what the right answer is, because they really feel like they only have one shot, because they're beholden to us, the taxpayers, the voters, to get it right the first time. Companies, I found, as you know, I was a consultant for a while, they make decisions fast, they see if it works, it doesn't work, they pivot, they do something else, and they, they iterate faster and faster and faster. And what I've been finding the government is now able to do, at least the US government increasingly, has been able to pivot just a little bit faster. It's still a big ship, it's still, there's still a lot of, you know, just a, you know, a large inertia behind it, but it has been surprisingly been more nimble in recent years, at least the bureaucracy, uh, in, in kind of responding to, to changes and in, in, in changes in, uh, in the outside context. All right, so civilization is not gonna collapse. Well, Yay or no? <laughs> I, mean, that, I mean, that's a, well. yeah. it's funny because a bureaucracy is meant to regularize and systematize processes. It's not meant for chaos, you know, to deal with, with a new situation, with new chaos. And this is what they're faced with now. And I think, uh, and, and to some of the expertise from, from my other panelists, you know, it still remains a challenge for them because it, by definition, the bureaucracy is meant to carry out things on a regular basis over a long period of time in a regular, systematic, kind of consistent way. Mm. Rhina. It's interesting, I was told, I was getting this panel and I was delivered the panelists and I was like, whoa, this is the most interesting dinner party I've ever been invited to. <laughs> How are they ever going to connect? And then there were all these really interesting threads. And Rhina, when I started looking into your work, you do a lot of work thinking about technology um, and how established systems aren't equipped to deal with the pace of technological development and maybe, you know, they're not meant to deal with chaos, as John said. Um, in one paper of yours that I read, you wrote, advances in biological sciences have occurred at a faster rate than changes in regulatory and legal frameworks for biosecurity. Um, some of your paper kind of chilled my spine a little bit. Um, can you talk about technology and how it has the capacity to keep us safer, you know, to cure diseases, to come up with vaccines, but also harm us? What's the dark side of technology as you see it? Sure, so the, you know, I think um, biosecurity is very analogous to cybersecurity where the technology has gone ahead in leaps and bounds, uh, but we are still using regulatory frameworks from last century which are no longer fit for purpose. Um, you know, 
one of the examples there is ge genetic engineering. Uh, there's been attempts to genetically engineer pathogens, organisms, for a long time, including in the Soviet bioweapons program back in the 1960s and 70s, but they were using very crude technology. Uh, in about 2012, a new method called CRISPR-Cas9 was developed, and that's revolutionized gene editing. So you can edit anything with DNA, plants, animals, viruses, human beings. You've probably heard that um, a Chinese scientist created engineered babies this year, and that was highly controversial. In fact, they've been editing human embryos uh, in the UK and in Sweden since 2016, but not carried them through to live births. So <clears throat> in this era where we can create uh, new bugs that are more pathogenic, more dangerous, etc., there is a real risk that we'll face a pandemic that is uh, man-made, um, that, that may either result from a laboratory accident or deliberate release. And in terms of deliberate release, you know, if you publish the methods to hack a bank account on the internet, what's the probability that somebody will use those methods? It's 100%. And it's the same with uh, you publish methods to create a biological weapon, what's the probability somebody will use it? It's 100% in my view. Uh, you know, human beings have always wanted to harm other human beings or some human beings. It's happened throughout history, and if you provide people with methods to harm, they will use those methods. And uh, many people re refer to biological weapons as the poor man's nuke, because it's much more accessible than nuclear weapons. Nuclear technology is very difficult to access, and much more challenging for um, perpetrators. I told you, spine chilling. <laughs> Um, even in the green room, we were talking, and you kept you brought up a couple times different scenarios of bad actors, of things that could happen. And I guess this is a later question I had for you, but in your specialized work, do you feel that this gives you agency in terms of feeling like a kind of sense of understanding how the world works now or it can work, or does it keep you up at night? It keeps me up at night because, you know, um, Infectious diseases have weapons of mass destruction potential, and sometimes people who tinker with this stuff and uh, do it for whatever reason may think that they can play God, but I don't believe anyone can play God when it comes to releasing a pathogen. There's always something you wouldn't have anticipated. Uh, you know, um, it's it's something we need to think about in terms of regulation. So there's, you know, in 2017, a Canadian uh, scientist synthesized from scratch with $100,000 in mail-order DNA an extinct pox virus that's very closely related to smallpox. And that is now published in an open access journal, not behind a paywall, <laughs> which means the methods are out there, and it means that uh, anyone could create smallpox in a laboratory just by following those methods. And that's what's really kind of uh, had people concerned in the last couple of years, that the threat of re-emergence of smallpox. In an, in an era where, you know, prior, when it, smallpox was eradicated, the first heart-lung transplant hadn't occurred. Bone marrow transplant was in its infancy. We now live in societies where there's quite high levels of immunosuppression. Maybe one in five people live with uh, significant medical immunosuppression. So what would the impact of something like that be today? Yeah. The scientists who posted the paper, what, what was their, I assume, because scientists seem like nice people generally, that there, there was a reason for 
that research for good, or is that the question? Uh, yes, he had reasons and, uh, you know, um, justified his research, but interestingly, you know, I think the FBI and other uh, intelligence agencies gather, supposedly gather intelligence to try and detect planning for uh, biological mm -hmm. weapons. Uh, nobody picked this up and no one knew about this experiment until the scientists told the WHO after the event, after it had been done. Oh, wow. So uh, we don't even have systems to pick up um, this kind of research that's going on. Wow. So you're on the side of yay in terms of civilization collapsing. I, I think it's, it's possible. <laughs> there's a tally yeah. going on. There's a, there's a <laughs> you know. Um, Liam, you and I are like the unreal people here. So yeah, let's, yeah. I'm totally intimidated. You guys do the real stuff. We just tell stories. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I work at a think tank. I don't make anything. <laughs> um, I watched a presentation that you gave at the Met in New York City. It um, was really fascinating. And you talked about your work and some of the films that you make, which I would say unpack like our, this, a simplistic vision of the future that's often handed to us by technology companies mostly. You know, like your phone is gonna give you this simple, easy life with everything's gonna be white. <laughs> Everyone's smooth surfaces like a Mac store. Um, and you really, your work seems to really take in the complexity of technology. Um, one of your films that you talked about, um, maybe you can tell us more about it, but you talked about the different, you kind of dramatized the different possible uses for drones, like a drone could, walk a dog, a drone can be used for surveillance, a drone can be a weapon of war, but could also be like a way to hack into sending love letters between two teenagers. Um, and you had this great quote, which I have to admit, I had to listen, I watched the video like a hundred times to get this transcription, but my husband was like, that's really interesting, after he had heard it like a thousand times. Um, we were really pretty into it, so I'm just gonna read it here. You said, so often now, futures are presented to us through the rhetoric of these kind of efficiencies and problem solving through technology, and they're marketed to us through these cute icons and graphics of the smart city. The management of the city, which was once publicly elected, is now outsourced to proprietary software systems, and public services begin to disappear into the cloud, which leads to the question, do we become customers or citizens of our cities? That was such a good question. Um, but again, we're kind of returning to like the double-edged nature of technology. Um, and I just wanted you to talk a little bit about your work and how maybe a more nuanced view and understanding of technology can give us a nuanced view of the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean yes, I, I, you know, I tell stories, um, but I do think there's a real um, uh, important way of thinking about how we talk about technologies when answering these kind of questions about whether they're good or bad. Because um, it's impossible to separate technology from culture. Um, so what we do through stories is prototype the different ways that, that culture um, assimilates or takes on certain technologies and prototypes the different things that we can do with them. Because I don't think any of the technologies that we're talking about that may either bring about collapse or save us from that collapse are inherently good or evil, are productive or negative. Um, they're just extensions of ourselves. You know, like all of these technologies, whether it's biotech or, or certain military tech or drones or driverless cars or whatever is the technology du jour, um, uh, they're all um, exaggerations 
of who we are. They're equal parts fear and wonder, because in many ways, so are we. So I'm interested in the ways that our culture engages with these tech and what we do with them. You know, and we're good at really doing two things. We're good at selling each other technology. We're good at you know, getting up on stage with a big screen behind us and launching the new iPhone, and it's going to make us happier, better connected, easier to talk to our mothers. They're going to give us better <laughs> orgasms, um, whatever it is. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're sold um, tech from one particular angle. In a way, that's a, a kind of a dominant media narrative that surrounds it. Then the other way we talk about technology, and especially in this town, is from a really dystopian perspective. You know, the aliens are invading, we need something that Dwayne the Rock Johnson is going to fight against. Um, so it's technology out of control, it's biotech gone wrong, um, the drones are invading, or the aliens, or whatever it is. Um, we can do that really well also, um, because it plays on all of our fears. What we're really bad at is talking about nuanced relationships to technology. Um, when Elon Musk gets on stage and presents the new Tesla battery or the power wall or this, 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 his green energy vision of a future that's going to be all solar, um, it sounds really great and hopeful, but it's also at the same time a very easy and simplistic view of what the future is going to look like. He should also be talking up on stage about where all the lithium that, that, that is a component in his batteries comes from. And I don't think we're incapable of understanding those subtleties to his vision. Um, uh, but for whatever reason, they avoid those questions. Um, so we try and create stories in our films that talk about the different ways that technology becomes enculturated, the, the complexities, the misuses of technology, the positive and negative outcomes, to try and prototype and imagine what technologies we should have in our world as opposed to the technologies that are kind of thrust upon us. Because mm. most of the time, the stuff that arrives comes at us not because it's going to make our lives better, but because uh, it can be sold to us. Um, and we need to become much more active agents in um, controlling and asking questions of the technologies that we want to have in our lives, as opposed to just waiting in line for the next iPhone to be released <laughs> and hoping it's going to do something awesome, which it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> um. Do either of you have anything to respond to that? I'm just curious about what you think about, you know, if, if things are simplified for us for capitalistic reasons, and if we look at things with a little bit more complexity, then maybe we can problem solve a little bit more and we have more agency in understanding how the world is working and what role we play in it. Oh, absolutely. I, I would shake my head more furiously if this microphone didn't fall off. <laughs> it's um, taped on. <laughs> it is. Uh, but... Uh, Liam, to, to your point, it really is, technology really is an extension of ourselves, and, and the the background that I come from, particularly when, uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, um, at that time, we were thrust with all these different technologies, particularly to stop roadside bombs. This is just one small kind of microcosm case, but in a very kind of a pressure cooker environment where you know, we were given different technologies to try out and see if we could, if we could stop you know, or, or prevent or mitigate some of these roadside bombs that were, that were harming and maiming and killing uh, many of us. And what I always thought was really curious uh, were all these technologists that, particularly in the first years of, the, uh, of, of that conflict, when it, really, when it really got bad, 2003 and 2004, you know, they had a vision of what this technology could do. This thing can jam this frequency that this roadside bomb transits on. And we'd bring it out there, and the enemy would find another way around it, uh, which is what you would expect them to do. 
We didn't really get good at that, at, at adapting to that, until those technologists not only used, you know, thought about the ways that they could conceive of, of, of some, you know, some counter to that, but they really started communicating with us in real time. Is this working? Is that working? No, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. And that conversation was, I think, what you were, what the, the kind of thing that, that you were looking for, mm -hmm. Liam, the, uh, the interaction, the interplay, the agency mm -hmm. uh, to not just have technology thrust upon us, but to actually kind of uh, try to define what it might be and what it can do for us. Ultimately, I think it really did, uh, it really did kind of stem, you know, stem the flow uh, over time by about 2009, the last time I was in Iraq. Uh, it became, you know, that, the roadside bomb problem was, was much reduced because of that interaction, which didn't happen before. And I really thought it was, that, was really, that was really interesting. I didn't think so at the time because I was, you know, I was mm. a little busy. But uh, <laughs> in, in later years, I realized what a sea change it was when we really started talking to those technologists back in the States that were trying to help us as best they could, but could only imagine so far. Mm. Um, as to how they could help us. Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned it as well, Rana. Like, I think one of the one of the conditions that that the, the the increasing pace of technology sets in motion is that like they're all what I describe as before culture technologies. You know, they, they've arrived faster than our cultural capacity to understand what they mean has, or they've certainly arrived, as you mentioned, faster than our legal um, understanding of their consequences are. Um, like we're still, like just a few weeks ago, I think Kim.com, that guy in New Zealand that launched Mega Upload, um, is still fighting um, his extradition to the United States on file piracy charges. And this is like you know, 15 years after that, that, that first set in motion. We still don't understand what like data piracy is versus you know, when I read a book and I enjoy it and I give it to you, that's sharing, but if I download a movie and, and, I, and I put it on a drive and give it to you because I enjoyed it, that's file piracy. We're still trying to create that legislation and Napster was generated 20 years ago. You know? mm. um, so what we do in telling stories is try and prototype um, the possible implications of, of these, future, the, these futures and technologies before they happen so that perhaps we can reverse engineer some of those outcomes to, to get ahead of the game a little bit and start to put in place preemptive regulation, um, to start to put in place um, preemptive action or procedures to mitigate against either the, the, positive, out, the positive outcomes of, to sort of mitigate either the negative outcomes of these technologies or scaffold um, the potential for potentially productive outcomes of these technologies. So I think there's, we're really bad at long-term thinking. Um, <laughs> and uh, when it comes to technologies um, and the speed that they arrive, that's fundamental. Um, to engaging with them in, in meaningful and productive ways. Mm. Anything to add, Rana? Well, I think the, the reliance on technology that we have now also makes us very vulnerable in the event of a natural disaster or any other kind of disaster. It's mega cities with, where, with, which are technologically enabled that are going to be hardest hit, and it'll be rural and remote areas and you know, countries that have subsistence living that will be more resilient because they've got basic survival skills and means, whereas people in big cities who need their Wi-Fi connection, their car, their, you know, all their gadgets and so on, uh, it'll be very difficult um, to deal with a, with a large-scale disaster situation. That's true, guys. <laughs> um, you know, this panel's called is civilization on the verge of collapse? And of course I have to ask the question, what do we mean when we say civilization? When we ask if civilization is under threat of collapsing, whose civilization are we talking about? Because I think 
right? We have to ask that question. Do any of you have an answer to that? Um, yeah, I mean, like my answer to the, to the broad question is civilization has always been collapsing. Um, I mean, you, for, like whether it's coincidence or by design, you have two Australians on this panel. Um, if you had an indigenous Australian on this panel, they would have said their civilization collapsed in the 1970s. Um, yeah. It's not something of the future, it's something that's already happened in many ways. Um, so I think it's important to, to, to understand the perspective from which we're exploring civilization and what collapse actually means. Um, uh, so I think there's that caveat which, which, we need to, which we need to put in place to a certain extent. Um, but I guess I, I'm presuming that the panel is kind of framing it in terms of civilization, like the glossy, shiny um, futures that we all enjoy in a city like Los Angeles. Um, and in that sense, you have to wonder, um, uh, like a collapse is probably due in many ways. Um, uh, <laughs> Like the, the, the extent to which we can go on living with the luxuries that we have is, is something that's worth discussing yeah. and questioning. Yeah. John, I think I asked you in the email if this game of like, is the world ending or not? Is that kind of a, the, a parlor game of the privileged? I mean, you have worked in places where you said had shaky governance. And I'm just curious what you learned about being in places like Iraq during war and has it added to your perspective and this question of what happens after something really terrible happens, people go on? Yeah, it really gives me a sense of, of optimism, actually, strangely enough. And this is not to downplay you know, the, the, the trauma that Iraqi society in particular, which I have kind of a little bit of experience with, has undergone um, for, you know, for many decades now. Uh, but it, it struck me when, when I was there, particularly around 2007, this was a time when Al Qaeda in Iraq, now now ISIS, was really you know really had a hold of uh, of many of the cities in western Iraq where, where I was at Hadith in particular, and you know they were killing people in the streets. They were uh, you know you just didn't know if you were in Iraq, you didn't know if you're going to live you know live to the next day. But what I always found when I patrolled and was out in the city was. A, was resilience. It was people that were still laughing, that were still uh, seeing the sunset on the, on the Euphrates River, that were still cooking, that were still doing all the things that in one way, shape, or form are recognizable to me and to us and to all of us in the audience as, you know, as regular, normal, day-to-day -day existence. And that has always stuck with me, that even in that traumatized time, um, and that wasn't the last, you know, kind of uh, degradation they had done. They had they had to endure. Uh, they were still living, and they were still making making the best of it. So it gives me some sense of of optimism that even if society did collapse, that somehow, you know, we we collectively civilization would would go on. Um, and I'm really struck by your comment, Liam, about the Aboriginal people and you know, the perspective that they might have, which is, which is that it has already happened to them. <laughs> Anything to add, Rana? Well, As our thanks, second you know. Aussie on the panel, I mean, what is this? Let's party. It's The Aussie coffee shops, have you been to them? I've heard there's lots in LA. Yeah, <laughs> flat white, please. Yeah. That's my terrible Australian yeah. accent. Um, <laughs> So I think uh, in terms of the definition of civilization, I think it's technologically enabled civilization that we're talking about, you know. Um, wherever you are in the world, the truth is we live in a very globalized, interconnected world with just-in-time economies where, you know, our supplies and our parts are coming from all over the world. Um, and that, I think, is a very fragile ecosystem and um, 
under threat for a lot of reasons, not just geopolitical issues, but also um, the, I think it's quite well recognised that there are a bunch of technological issues that could um, be an existential threat to humanity altogether, um, including biological um, events, um, you know, the, the natural disasters like a meteorite strike, but cyber um, security issues as well as um, things like nanobots and all kinds of new technological threats that have the capacity to um, threaten the survival of our species. So, yeah, to me it's technological civilization. Yeah. And, and I, I thought of the title as existential threats to humanity. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we've been telling these stories as humans forever, right? From the be I would assume from the beginning of time that our time is coming up. Um, <laughs> and I, mean, I think we've always kind of understood we have so much vast power on this planet, but then also such vulnerability. So I'm wondering what is different about our end of the world fears now? I mean, is it precisely because we live in such a technological world now that we couldn't I mean, I live on the east side. I grew up here. I had to get, use my phone to know how to get here. <laughs> my Thomas guide is long gone, alas. Um, but do you think that's at the heart of our current kind of crisis about this? Or is it, the, is it just a rerun of what we've always feared? Well, it's, I think about it. Um, I have two young kids at home, two and four. And, and sometimes I, like, I would not want my son to bump into this coffee table and bump his head. Uh, but at the same time, I want him to learn uh, to, to kind of adapt to it. And I think about us as civilization, not as exactly as my two and four-year-old are, but there are very few things that are you know, absolutely game over, like sticking a fork in a, an electrical socket. And I think in terms of um, civilization and where we've been and the struggles that we have kind of undergone uh, collectively, you know, we've had some pretty, some pretty close calls. You know, the, the, the place I work now, Rand Corporation, was instrumental in trying and struggling to figure out how to, how to, you know, to use nuclear weapons and to use them in a way that where we would survive and we would, we would go on, which is, you know, just impossible. But, you know, one of the things I, I did when I first started working there was, was kind of look at some of the notes from that time just because I was really curious. And some of the brightest minds at that point were certain, absolutely certain, that we were going to end in, in a giant fireball, that it was just like no matter what we did, uh, that there was you know, more than even odds that we would all be consumed by an atomic fireball at some, at some point. And it didn't happen, it hasn't happened yet. And so we've gotten through that somehow. You know, we, we've created the frameworks to have a dialogue with, uh, with the Soviet Union at that time to eventually tamp things down. We created, you know, people created the, the, will, the political will to, you know, to conduct arms control agreements. So I think the only difference between that time, for instance, and now is that we're getting close to the fork in the socket moment. That there are things, uh, and Raina, you, you pointed out that, that you know, nuclear weapons were the, the province of state actors and that you know, some of these biosecurity threats or cyber, cyber threats are accessible to so many more people. And so that part does absolutely worry me, that, that um, the proliferation and the accessibility of these threats that, are, uh, that have these outsized effects is, is, uh, is more than what we've seen before. I think one of the other issues, John, is that um, we've seen a convergence of nefarious actors. So in the, yeah. even 10, 15 years ago, Terrorism was a silo there, organised crime over here. There wasn't much 
um, interaction between them, but things like the dark web have now enabled um, unprecedented collusion and collaboration between different nefarious actors, whether it's state actors, terrorist groups, or organised crime. So now I think law enforcement people agree that it's organised crime is financing terrorism, and you know there's very close connections, and that's the part that's really hard to get a handle on, with, combined with the accessibility of um, technology. But the other thought I had was just about artificial intelligence, you know, the whole uh, idea of the singularity when um, um, some people argue we've uh, already near, reached that. Right? that is the singularity near, isn't that what people say? Well, some people say it already has occurred, don't they? That, that machines are, as in some ways, are as intelligent or can do more than the human brain can. I mean, I don't think that's true in all areas. There's uh, certain things where human... Um, Human intelligence is, uh, can't be replicated by a machine yet, but you know that, that might come and what happens then. It's interesting that's a concept from, from storytelling, like, mm. uh, the, the AI singularity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the science fiction author has been very great at prototyping all kinds of dystopian fears. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I mean, I've, when I when I make my films, like uh, uh, traveling and going to these places um, around the world, is a big part of that because I'm, there's a you know now a cliched quote in Futures from the science fiction author William Gibson, who says that the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed, and and, mm. and I try and take that at face value, and that what that means is I can get on a plane and travel to pockets of the future that are existing in the present tense and kind of document mm. them. Um, and a lot of our world building for film in, in, in this town comes from those observations of going to those places. So there's ways where you can see these emerging trends playing out in real time. Um, mm. You just have to be attuned to them and kind of be aware of them. And I think there we can again start to prototype the possible implications of some of these um, possible futures or trends or disasters. Um, but I, I, I think in many ways the reason why we're having a panel like this now um, and I have, I have the word futurist in my bio, so I get invited to lots of these kind of things, um, is because um, I think right now it's different from the various apocalypse that have come before us, because it's no longer just fear of, of the nuclear age. Um, it's now fear of nuclear, biotech, um, AI, um, technology out of control, massive climate change, economic collapse. Like there are so many balls in the air, any one of which could fall and destroy everything. Um, uh, like there's, there's so many apocalypses coming. Um, uh, choose, choose your own adventure. Yeah, choose, choose, choose your own version of how civilization ends yeah. right now. And I think that's part of the reason why now is different. And it's also part of the reason why the future is becoming a project again. There's a revival of sci-fi and fantasy because um, you know, at times of crisis, um, the sightings of UFOs increase, you know, like because we, um, we want to try and figure it out as a culture. We want to try and tell stories about all these different possible outcomes um, to try and get ourselves ready somehow. Um, so I think now is a moment different from the others because it's all coming at us. Yeah. Um, there's no singular enemy. Um, uh, we just don't know how any of these things may play out, and that's pretty scary. Yeah. It seems to me, too, that there's, there's not really a... Nobody's controlling the narrative. There's no master narrative anymore. It's all sort of broken down. So we know what's happening around the world at all times with the click of a button. Mm. And we have all these voices, which is a benefit, right? We can, all these people can tell different stories, but then that can be 
a little bit troubling too, right? When we're it's like, well, which, which disaster will happen, right? Um, Liam, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about this book that your think tank put out called Machine Landscapes, Architectures of the Post-Anthropocene? Anthropocene. Post-Anthropocene, yeah. Did I get it right? Yes. Yeah, um, we, we, when we first started writing the book, it was called Architectures of the Anthropocene. Um, and the book took so long to come out that it's now the post <laughs> So my, my publishing is, is pretty my, slow. My joke is the, the, the publishing industry moves slower than geological epochs. Um, <laughs> uh, um, can you define that word, um, anthro anthropocene? Anthropocene. So that's, uh, yeah, I mean, we often talk about it in kind of panels like this is a word that we've, through some kind of consensus of scientists and philosophers, um, we've come to this idea that we're now in a geological age where humans are the dominant force shaping the planet. So anthro, like the human, um, is now shaping our Earth. And if you think about it, in many, many ways that's true. Um, we have remade and reshaped every inch of our globe um, for our own ends. Um, we've geoengineered the entirety of the planet to deliver fruit that's out of season, to, to give us energy, to, um, to, to, to build an, an iPhone. You know, that's an extraordinarily complex piece of technology that you can't produce in one place. There's no such thing as the local iPhone. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a really global object. And we've engineered the planet as this kind of global conveyor belt um, in order to deliver these luxuries for our life. Um, so that's the Anthropocene. Um, uh, and I guess the, the provocation of the, that book is to talk about the post-Anthropocene, which a number of other thinkers are, are on at the moment, which is to say that we've kind of already come out of that mode, actually, that now humans aren't the dominant force shaping the planet, but it's the machines that we've designed that are. Um, it's the algorithms that we write. Um, it's the AI that we set in, in motion. These are the things that are now making the choices that are reshaping our world. Um, so this book was a kind of a survey of all of the landscape conditions, the architectures and the systems, things like data centers, um, fully autonomous shipping ports, um, Amazon fulfillment centers. Um, these are the entities, the infrastructures that make our world, that sit at the center of our lives, but they're also entirely invisible. They're sites that we will never visit, um, that we don't have access to. They're literal human exclusion zones. Um, and it represents a massive shift in our culture that, you know, the church, um, the home, uh, now the museum or the gallery, these used to be the, the, the center points of our cultural imagining. Um, now it's the Amazon Fulfillment Center or the Facebook Data Center. Um, but it's different because we can't go, we don't go to lectures on, on Wednesday nights in, in the Facebook data center in Prineville, Oregon. Um, well, if you're hip, you get invited to those. Sorry? If you're really hip, well, you get well, to go Well, you get invited to the lobby, um, <laughs> but you're not allowed in to where the servers are. Yeah. Um, uh, so the, so the, these are the cultural typologies of our age, though, yet they're entirely, entirely unmanned and unstaffed. Um, so I was interested in, in if we're thinking about civilization, if we're talking about collapse, if we're talking about our future, um, what does it mean to, to, to be remaking our world at the scale that we are? Um, what does it mean to be creating technologies that are doing that for us? Um, uh, the, I think these are interesting questions. I think this is it's, fascinating. Yeah. Let, my, let the experts weigh in on this. Either of you have any response to that? Well, as I say, what, it's interesting that, um, Liam, you, you kind of phrased it in the post and proper scene in that we will kind of, we're, we're, we're just kind of 
kind of letting machines kind of do do their will upon us. And it's interesting as you're discussing that, it, it occurred to me that you know you, as long as you have agency and the ability to um, to respond to that and to react to it in some way, whatever it may be, uh, that the story isn't quite over yet. And the mere fact that you're sitting here talking about it and I'm listening intently uh, to it is again gives me some sense of optimism that you know if if we were truly in that post-Anthropocene age, we would be humming along, just, you know, just moving along just fine, just like, uh, I don't know, that Disney movie, Wall-E. Yeah, I was going to say Wall-E. Humming, you know, humming <laughs> along, being, <laughs> being anesthetized by their TV screens in front of their faces. The mere thought that you, are, that you and others are thinking about it uh, gives me a sense of optimism. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, I don't want to be the guy sitting here saying, oh, we're all doing technology shit. Um, uh, like... Um, I mean, it may not sound like it. Good. Uh, I'm inherently a techno-optimist, actually. Um, uh, I, I think what's interesting about this moment is um, there are there are where we're in the belly of the beast, right? Like yeah. we, we can see all of these possible futures. They haven't happened yet, um, which is a really powerful place to be. You know, on the cutting edge of the possibility for change. But what it means is that the decisions we make now um, really matter. You know, like our, our future, the projections of civilization collapsing by 2050, all of this stuff um, uh, it comes back to this point right now at this moment in the decisions we make. Um, and, and that's why I think uh, it's actually a really exciting question. And it's not a question that should fill you with dread and fear, um, but it's a question that should really be a call to arms and a rallying cry. Um, and, you know, whether or not you're, a, you're in a uh, a think tank or a biosecurities agency or you're a Hollywood producer making a film with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Um, like, you know, the decisions that you make through all of those movements, um, uh, you know, can, can mean something, you know? And then to talk to um, you, your point about the, the network creating a condition that all these different actors come together, the other potential of the network is that um, uh, through things like hashtag activism or the Facebook group that organized the Women's March, the same network that um, collide together, organize crime and um, uh, terrorism uh, can also organize more humans than in all of our entire history to come together to protest a president um, or to, to rally around climate change. Um, so it's also exciting and, and it's also really optimistic that if we point the network and these technologies in the right direction, um, we can act at scales that might actually mean something in the face of the scale of these problems that we're, that we're coming across. In the event that civilization does collapse, you know, why not? Let's go there. Um, I mean, the panel asks, what are the risks of human society returning to the darkness of the early Middle Ages? Um, I also wonder, what, are, what would the pleasures and the surprises be? Um, I mean, I think that's part of the fantasy. It's, I mean, it's a nightmare, but it's also the fantasy, right? Some, my phone wouldn't work anymore, and I wouldn't be able to do this or that, and suddenly, of course, I would survive. I, we, you know, in the, in the fantasy, you're one of the last remaining people. I'm go, I, my contacts are going to dry up, and my husband's asking, it's not going to work, and it's over for us. But, um, Rana, what do you think? Are there any, do you think, I mean, you're, you start as a physician, right? And then you moved into working more, this, um, doing this research and stuff. But you worked people to people, and I'm curious, have you thought about if it swung in the other way, if it went backwards? Well, I think, you know, if, if there was a catastrophic event that, 
I think it's known that the Earth can only support one million people with the energy of the sun, and no other, you know, technology, which is how it was. Um, and uh, one of the good things, I suppose, for those one million people would be that uh, they'd probably be having more sex, because they'll they won't have electricity. So in the old days. People used to go to bed at 5 p.m. as soon as it got dark. They yeah, didn't stay up and sleep, do, right? yeah. you know, watch TV or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they so, have more sex and have more children. Side note: In California, <laughs> in my book, I have my characters, I think, having sex only three times in a six-week period. The number of complaining reviews online that the characters <laughs> were having too much sex. I was really concerned with the prudishness of American readers. <laughs> but I agree. <laughs> what do you guys think? Well, I was, I was thinking that it would be this is a bit macabre, but I would think that it's a very, it would be a very nice reset. Don't people actually do that now? Like they like kind of have these detoxes where they try to take away all their technology and they kind of live in the present uh, purposefully um, <laughs> as a means of kind of resetting themselves. Uh, it would be that on a on a on a massive scale, <laughs> right? Um, I, I think. I think that would be the greatest pleasure. It would be hitting the reset button. It would be whether it's one million or, or whatever the number is uh, to, to start all over again. Um, I think that that doesn't sound appealing for most of us, <laughs> myself, myself included. But you know, the thought of, I, I, the one kind of thing I wonder about is like how much of the knowledge of what had transpired would transfer to those, those one million people, just as you know, knowledge of the Greeks and the Romans uh, survive in one way or another through through the through the medieval uh, medieval times. You know, well, I wonder how. Can I interrupt you there, John? <laughs> sure. Because knowledge largely is digital today, right? It in is that, In those times, we could look up stone tablets or books. There's going to be a lot of knowledge lost. Certainly, I think a lot of knowledge would be lost. But um, as I pick up my still my paper copy of the LA Times, and <laughs> there's still a significant, I think, still enough that I wonder how much of that would transfer on to the, to the future. Obviously not all of it, because we create, gosh, so much more uh, mm. information in the digital realm than we do in, in, in print or in stone or, or what have you. But I, I would say that some of it would probably move on. I just wonder what we would do with it, mm. what we would learn from it. Well, I want to thank mm. our panelists. Let's give them a round of applause. Jonathan, Ryan, Ryan.